On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Just to flag that today's episode contains details of murder and content some people may find distressing. Siobhan Carney was just 38 years of age when she was murdered by her husband, Brian Carney, in Dublin in 2006. Now, her death was so brutal, it was so staged, that the state pathologist, Mary Cassidy, at the time, described her as being throttled and garroted. With the prospect of parole on the cards for Siobhan's killer, Brian Carney, who has served 12 years for her murder, Siobhan's family are now reminded once again of the horror that took their sister away on the 28th of February, 17 years ago. I'm Siobhan McGuire and joining me today are Sunday Independent columnist Bridget McLaughlin and Ashling McLaughlin, Siobhan's sisters, to tell me all about Siobhan and why life should mean life where jail sentences are concerned. Bridget and Ashling McLaughlin, thank you both so much for joining me today to talk about uh, your sister Siobhan. Now, I want first of all to Talk about Siobhan, the sister, the friend, the chatterbox. 38 years you had with her. What was she like? Who wants to take this first? Ashling, oh I can God. see you. Oh Shawnee, um, I, I, I don't think of Siobhan as in the past. For me, Siobhan is always with us and with me. And she's I'm talking to her every day. So she is a force of nature. Is. And always will be. Um, she keeps us going because there's no way that I think we would have been able to keep going through this without the faith and love that we have for Siobhan and knowing that she's with us and helping us to endure this and also to do the work that was left that needed to be done on her behalf. There's a lot of sisters and one boy in the family. Where where does Siobhan come in? Siobhan came, she's fifth in the family. And um, she was, and even though she was fifth, we were all really, really close. And it's only a year between all of us. And um, she was, as Ashling said, um, the life force. And it's just interesting being here this morning. Ashling and I were just talking about this earlier with you, Siobhan, because your name is Siobhan. And even that, your name is quite poignant to be in a room with a Siobhan. Um, everything about Siobhan is charged for us with emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of sadness, obviously. And, um, but... We, as Ashing said, she is with us all the time. Um, she was a life force. She was extremely witty, funny, hardworking, um, organised, immaculately dressed, um, very, um, very, very humorous. Hilarious. And just hilarious, absolutely yeah. Hilarious. hilarious, yeah. From the moment she came in the door, it was just... 
taking off my dad, my mom, you'll never guess, look at this, what happened, whatever. Whether it was um, her son, she was... The crack was just non-stop from the moment Siobhan walked in the door. That was it. We were off. There was nothing that Siobhan would do other than bring joy and happiness and fun to people's lives. I've, I've never seen anything like it. She didn't know how to to be, um, I suppose, serious or down. And maybe that was the bad thing, really, at the end of it all, because she wasn't able to show that side. She, that was not a vulnerable part for Sean, for Shawnee. I call her Shawnee because that's Shawnee's nickname. That's <laughs> her Siobhan's nickname. But, um, and I think that probably was... Yeah, the downfall, because she always put on the the crack, no matter what, even in those last days and weeks, um, which we now know were her last days and weeks, but we didn't know that at the time. She was mid-30s when she had Dan, was she? Yes. Right, yes. OK. And and she m- met Brian at what age? She was very young, I actually can't she? talk about him in the first name, to be quite yes. honest okay. with you. If, yeah. Right. Can we can I say husband, even? Is yes. That, yeah. yes. Husband, okay. yeah, her husband. Yes. Yeah. So... She met her husband when she was quite young. She was. She was only, she first um, arrived, I first met him at my own wedding. Um, so that was in uh, in the 85, 86. And Siobhan was, yeah, she was at 20. Was she that, was she not she younger? 20 she? even, I'm not too sure if she I was She was younger, yeah, when she met him. But he was 10 years older than her. Yeah. Can we go back to that day in 2006? Is that okay Yes. And talk yeah. about what happened, uh, because I'm sure there are people listening who aren't overly familiar with the case. Um, yes. Basically, he staged a, a suicide. He did. Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, but he also he, he went, according to Marie Cassidy, when he and, 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 I, and I will come back to that, but he had a moment there, Siobhan, when he could have changed his mind. He had Siobhan unconscious and he had a moment there to call an ambulance or get help. But he chose in that moment to finish her off. That's what he did. He finished her and then staged it to look like a suicide. This is the the brutality of a murderer that is actually being offered parole hearings and reviews who's never admitted, taken responsibility, shown any remorse for what he's done. But the fact that that night when she was in her bedroom, she was absolute a niche freak. He had put the Hoover in her bedroom. This is all pre-planned. I mean, she would never leave a Hoover in a bedroom. You know, just some people would never do that. And she would never, because I often stayed in that bedroom. No, she would never do it. And then to lock her in the room where she couldn't escape. And she was, she didn't drink hardly. She had no, no, no drugs in her, no, like sleeping tablets in her body, nothing. She was terrified. She needed to be alert all the time for Dan. And he came in and he throttled her. He strangled her twice. And she was conscious for a lot of it. It takes a long time to strangle somebody and twice. And then he literally hung her over the door with the lead from the, the Dyson Hoover. I mean, no words can describe the fear that would cause, you know, for her. Um, just brute and her son, the first thing, she, the only thing she would have been thinking about was Dan. That was the only thing. So she died not knowing whether Dan was alive. Or, you know? And a little three-year-old left in an yes. adjoining room. 
Yeah, down. So he was wandering downstairs, and he made him cocoa puffs. He put, gave him a plate of cocoa puffs and left him there, knowing that my sister Neve. In fact, Neve was quite lucky, I think, because Neve arrived like clockwork every morning. And you know, he she could have been if she was late that morning. If she'd been earlier, he would have probably had killed her too. Who knows? You know, she was in, in danger. But like the death Siobhan got was beyond her. Beyond her. Dan actually recounted to me that he was actually a witness to part of that in terms of looking through a keyhole, keyhole and yep. hearing his mummy getting sick. Yeah. 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 Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, so and this obviously would have been talked about with the police at the yeah. time. But there was a lot of stuff that couldn't be talked about. Yeah. Neve arrives in. So Neve is, is the younger sister. The younger sister, sister sees little Dan wandering around. Mm-hmm. Yes. Realizes he says something's up. He's saying Mammy's dead. Didn't he? Somebody said actually. No, no he's not the one to no, say. No, no, no. He said Mammy's upstairs in, Mammy's the, in upstairs the bedroom. The door's the bed. locked. Door's locked. Yeah, yeah. And then my dad happened to break the door down, and Mum and Dad coming down. Literally, they couldn't stand coming down. Literally under under. Knees coming down the stairs. We all have post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. on a grand scale. And it's getting worse, I would say. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I would say it's getting worse. And were there any red flags along the way at all? Or was Siobhan just, as you say, the kind of person, she wasn't going to complain by the sounds of things. No, no. Um, she would put the, you know, the, the best foot forward. But was there any doubt or inklings? Did you, did you like him at all? No, we never liked him. Um, never. And um, that sounds like an astonishing thing to say, but we just thought that he was extremely boring. He wasn't uh, present, which anybody, particularly Siobhan or any of us, he disliked us enormous, the family enormously from the very get-go because that's common practice with people who like to isolate those close to the person. Um, he wasn't demonstrative. He never showed her love or affection. He wasn't generous. Um, he was just so boring. And I remember saying to her, God, Siobhan, what is the attraction? Because she was so vibrant and so unique in every way. She could cook, she could dance, she could sing, she could do hotelier business, she could do anything. And she said, Biddy, he is not a womanizer, doesn't drink much, doesn't smoke, he's safe. Horrendous words, yeah. He's safe. And she wanted stability and a happy family life. And and when mum met him first, mum said she couldn't even, mum couldn't even you know, take a handshake with him. She's got a really bad feeling about it. Um, now, that said, there was no other, there was no signs of what happened going to ha- come. They in. just weren't very... They weren't. I didn't feel ever that they were suited. They were never and suited. They were, it was always a bit of a um, kind of odd that odd. they were s- still together. And when they did break up, um, they broke up once... Um, because she, well, well, they broke up in a, in a big way after being together for a long time, um, se- several years, because they'd gotten engaged. And um, when they'd gotten engaged, he'd asked her for a prenuptial agreement. And Siobhan was deeply hurt by that, because at this stage she was raising his, his daughter. Um, they were living together. They'd been together for many, many years. And she just, she was absolutely flummoxed by it. She, she, and deeply wounded by the whole. And they, they did break up. And she was, she was actually really happy. And she had a wonderful um, few years there where she was, you know, getting herself together. And she did have, definitely, she had a hard time um, negotiating the fact that she 
had to get over the relationship. And she, she went to John of God's for a while, for a period of time. She was there for about three weeks. But um, when she got out, it was Shawnee, you know, she was determined. She was focused. She was back to Shawnee. And it wasn't long before she was back to herself that Neve reported, as family do, Neve was staying with Shawnee. And she reported, you're never going to guess who's outside. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No. And you yeah, just we were, didn't, we have to, didn't have to. Didn't yeah. And so she had peered out the window. And they and were sitting in the car outside. Right. And she was absent. And that was like, no, not this guy that has caused so much desolation in Siobhan's yeah. life. And then she rang, she rang me. And she ended up back with him. Yeah, she rang me. Um, he gave her her, her her original engagement rings back. He'd kept them. And um, he made sure to give her those back. So, And do you know, Ashling, did he seek Siobhan out? Or oh, he did, yes. Right. Oh, yeah. Or did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. she, uh, I remember because my husband had, had had an accident in the sea and we were having a big party, a barbecue. And um, she ran me up and she said, Biddy girl, would you call me? I have to ask you a big favour now. And I was saying, what, Johnny? No, you're not going to be happy, but I have to ask you a big favour. I said, don't tell me you're back with Brian Kearney. And she said, I want him to come to the barbecue. And I just said, my heart sank. I said, please, Johnny, don't do it to us. Don't do it to us. No, I want, I'd like him, please. You're always saying you, you care for my... I said, OK, bring him. And a minute she walked in, it was just like... The, the, the presence of someone who was so icky to all of us was there. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but at that time, we didn't know um, because Siobhan hadn't... Re- that that was as much as Siobhan had alluded to was the fact that he'd asked her for the prenuptial agreement. She never went into any other details, if there were any other details of any other behaviours or anything like that. So we, you know, took it at face value that he was just a, an un- unpleasant individual and like we'd kind of... Tolerate. Thought that she 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 wasn't suited to him anyway, and then the fact that she was ending up back with him, she never revealed any of what might have been happening then until until she was pregnant, and at that time, then Siobhan started to talk, and they had married by this time. Yes, Ashing. yeah, yeah, they had married. They had married abroad. Um, I don't know if Siobhan wanted did Siobhan want to marry here Bridget no she did and he wanted he insisted that they go away to Spice Island and that none of us were invited just the two of them it was just the two of them yeah, I know yeah. that and, and uh, this is like so anti our, you know like Siobhan and everything she, else the most beautiful wedding dress that she she flew to Italy to, to, to get this most amazing wedding dress but she was on her own I had to send her a telegram yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah I'd send her a telegram as well to her hotel we and, and the pictures are just the two of them him with a fedora on and Siobhan and a suit and Siobhan in this just sumptuous wedding gown on her own. Yeah, yeah. It's so much you carry around with you on a daily basis. Yes. Where Siobhan is concerned, where Shawnee is concerned. Yes. Yes. And do you look back on that period where she was starting to open up and is there, and I'm sure there is a, a, a wish or a want that my goodness, had she just spoken out a little bit more? You strike me as the kind of ladies who would have dived in and absolutely. swept her out of there. Yes, absolutely. But There's there was no one, there was one interesting thing that I think is really important for other women that would be listening to this podcast today. And it's something that I have huge issues with. Right? And it's basically when it's a disappeared, you know, this is for all women. When you are in a situation 
with with an abuser or with a man and you want to, you know, leave, you know, get out of the house, separate, and he refuses to accept it. When you go to the solicitor, if there's no history of domestic violence, the solicitor uh, will say, stay in the family home. Right. I don't know if they still do that, B. Yeah, because yeah, of everything, all the, the, I think the cases they still, since they still do, though. They I'm still not do. Sure. No, I heard they do. Now we have a fantastic solicitor and friend, a dear friend, and he was the one Siobhan went to, and he behaved absolutely perfectly professional because there was no history. But now, I would say, you leave. Now, if you say, well, where would I go to? Like, I've no family, I've no this. You find somewhere, even if it's a refuge. You do not stay there for the sake of the children. So solicitors should be saying, leave. They shouldn't even contemplate because every murder happens at this crucial time when they are leaving and they're already, they're, the, the couple are already killing each other. And if they're not, their stress levels are up to 90 and the tension in a house with a family. Can you imagine the pure horror of the whole thing? This is when they act. This is the main time they act when the girl, woman tries to leave. So I really believe solicitors should say, leave, not stay, leave. We've come a long way in the 17 years since you lost Shawnee, but some would say not even far enough yet. I mean, domestic violence against women is epidemic. It's an epidemic, an absolute epidemic. And it's like, you know, it's just it's getting more horror, more horror every day. When you think that when somebody, a man will say in this case, puts his hands around somebody's neck and chooses to murder them. That's a choice they make. And that's obviously an option that some men are still choosing because it's not actually the end for them. It's the end for the victim, but it's not the end for them. They still get um, hope. They still have um, hearings. They still have reviews. They've got education. They've got a future as such. So where is, I don't see anything punitive there that would stop or um, alarm some young men who are thinking about that. I I just, there's too much there to support them after they've committed these crimes. Way too much. I mean, you think, I mean, we always say this and it's kind of, people are kind of oblivious at this stage, but like 15 years, I mean, 15 years to a man, a premeditated, horrific execution in her bedroom, premeditated, left his own son downstairs, age two. You're talking about the most clinical, hard monster that you could invent. And he left her there, premeditated everything. And he's never admitted to the crime. I actually talked to the parole board just during the week and I'm waiting for answers at the moment. I wanted to know how many prisoners who have never admitted to the crime have been released. That's my big question at the moment. And if they're being released, how could they be? I mean, the parole is an act of grace. That's what it is in America. And this, I want the answers to this. I want to know how many have been released who have not admitted to a crime. And they, sometimes they say, oh, it's legislation. That's Actually, that's what they did say to me. It's legislation. GDPR. Yeah, GP, yeah, exactly. GDPR and uh, legislation. And um, that can happen. Of course, the cost of keeping these people in prison is huge as well. But, I mean, these are obvious questions. He's in there now and he is, he studied law, he studied Spanish. Earlier on, he got a gold medal in first age, which is particularly sickening. Um, He's able, he's no worries about his mortgage. He still has his hotel in Spain run by his brother. I mean, and his boyfriend. So like it's all there and he has nothing to worry about. Has he tried to contact the family? Not at all. No. Um, In saying that, 
I would have taken up a lot of responsibility for Siobhan's son, but he doesn't want us to talk about yeah. him directly. But Siobhan, I had a lot of responsibility in an involvement in Dan's life because from the moment that Siobhan died, I was in the courts looking for custody and access for Dan, of, of Dan. And he, he was out for two years with Dan before he was convicted. So that involved going to the house and collecting Dan for access and going to, um, you know, meeting points where he might be or at swimming and stuff like that. It was horrendous. When he was convicted, this is a huge thing for me now, Siobhan. When he was convicted, he still retained the right of guardianship under our constitution. He should not have that right. And no person like him who has done what they've done to the child's mother should have that right. The trauma you live with on a daily basis is bound to, well, I don't, I'm assuming it can only be worsened by the idea that a, a parole could well and truly happen for him, that he could be out within a matter of weeks. Exactly. Like, so we have at the moment, we have uh, Siobhan's anniversary is coming up on the 28th of this month. We have the parole going on. We see mum in bits at home. She's 83. We see dad who can hardly stand. He can't bear. Like he's, he found, he found like his little things in his, in his apartment that, you know, that card Siobhan gave him up on the wall framed um, a cookery knife that she hadn't called Brewer Street with her name on it she doesn't even use the knife because it's too emotional um, he is you know they're totally and utterly traumatised um, I'm addicted to Xanax I'm just off it at the moment the addiction but I've been addicted to Xanax since Siobhan died I mean it's, I had to just you know take a tranquilizer to knock it out you know, to make myself feel silent, to make myself feel calm. To numb the pain. To numb mm. the pain, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm only offered now at the moment for the first time. I'm determined not to be going it again. Well, don't be. Yeah. And, um, and it, it's, it's a time that I'd be normally knocking them back, you know, with the parole coming. But I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, you don't need to be. We don't need to, yeah. So all the different things that go on a daily basis, people would have no conception of. No, Absolutely they wouldn't. Not, yeah. The, uh, the other thing is that... Um, the parole, people talk about like data protection and things like, you know, and your information. But the fact that we can write, we have to write the letters. We don't have to, but we insist on doing the letters for the parole. The fact, we said this before again and again, Brian Carney can read our letters. He can read everything we write. I mean, how does that make any sense? No, it's totally unfair. Um, the, the system is, is it, it's been changed, but it's, it's been changed, as far as I'm concerned, minutely. Um, in that they now will hear the voices in a physical way in the room with victims and victims are classed as people who are um, um, related to the victim, if not the victim themselves. And um, also um, there's submissions, obviously, that people can make. But there's also a new board. It's 13 members on this new board and the the Minister for Justice doesn't have any direct connection with it as as previously. One of my issues with all of this is that when I did meet with the um, the, the secretariat of the um, parole board, they went through, I had a meeting with them for about an hour and a half and we went through all the, the, the process so that I could bring that information back home. But I, and, the, and they refer to the, the person who's going to have parole or 
be offered parole as the applicant. But the, that, that's actually not the case. The, the person does not apply for parole. They are automatically contacted with a letter that tells them you are now, um, you now have the opportunity to have parole. So, um, and it's just a yes or no answer. They don't have to make any submission. They don't have to make a case for themselves. They don't actually have to put any effort at all on their part into it. Um, so then all these agencies then have to get themselves organised, if he says yes, to get all the reports ready to support his, now his application, if you want to call it. But I actually, what I said to the parole board was, I said, it's more like an invitation. You're actually asking, you're inviting him to, to parole. And they said, well, it's, that's, you know, and so you, he RSVPs, so he RSVPs that he's going to do it. And then everybody else has to get moving. The chaplain has to send in a report. The guards have to send in a report. Psychologists, uh, caseworkers, all on his behalf. And it all has to be done within a certain window of time, a six-month window of time, because all of the, they all have to be within that time frame or else it's not valid. And then we get the chance now to have the meeting with the two members of the board. And the secretariat will take notes during that and a memo is produced. That memo is signed off by all the board and then it's added to this dossier of all the other reports. That dossier goes to Brian Carney, the whole dossier of all submissions from the family and all his reports. He still has done nothing except say yes. That's all he's had to do was say yes. Um, then the parole board will make a date to meet him. The two members that met the families will meet him. And he gets a chance to just verbally have that conversation about why he's um, eligible for parole, why he feels he's eligible for parole. And that's then based on all of this casework that's been put together for him. Um, and a memo was made of that meeting. We don't get to see that memo. So we don't get to see what he says, why he's entitled to parole. So everything is weighted in his favour. Has he been out on day release? Do you know what? I couldn't tell you. Okay. But I know that this is his fourth parole application and I wasn't aware of that. Okay. So uh, it was only from the meeting that I asked them, you know, how has he had others? And they said, yeah, this is fourth. So. Um, because he got a life sentence. Yes. yes. He served 12 years. Yeah. He was part of that um, cohort, I think, that were able to look for parole after seven years right. because that was just changed um, last year okay. from the, the review in 2019. Mm -hmm. So he was able to um, be a part of that seven year. Yeah. So now that was one of the other significant changes, actually, was that the parole board, they couldn't offer parole now until 12, whereas before it was a ridiculous seven. But he's in that group of seven. Right. OK. And so it's the, the life sentence. And yes, I, I'm wondering, do you ladies feel like you're serving the, the life sentence? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 100%. Of course we are every day. And, yeah. and not just one, three generations of us, because it's, it's, it leaks down. You know, like yeah. it, it sifts down to the rest of the family, to the yeah. nieces and nephews who have grown up with the aunts and grandparents talking about this yeah. when they're older. Yeah. Like it's their friends, a large circle of friends you had. It's really, really tested everybody. It's a daily part. Yeah, there isn't a life. day that there goes isn't a day by that there's something comes up. That there is some reference or some Reminder. pain or emotion 
to do with Siobhan. It just, the, the day does not go by that, that there we something. are not involved with Shawnee. I suppose what I find the most shocking now is that within the first two weeks of January, there were two murders of two gorgeous girls. Absolutely. And that is just, that was just like kickoff. Okay, so that's kickoff time now. So what's going to happen next? Where is the incentive to try and get underneath this and find out why men are choosing to do this and why do we have to bring this into another sphere? Do we have to bring this into the classroom and talk to have have modules for for kids to learn about healthy relationships, about respect, about um, that this is not the way. I mean, even to use this as an example, that this is not the way to have relationships. It's it has become the norm. It's become the norm now. Yeah, it has. Yeah, yeah. It's become the norm. And it's shocking. I think it's absolutely shocking that it can happen. You look at Ashley Murphy, you know, you look, there's, you could, the list of women goes on and on and on. And there's, men are not taking their hands off women. And the interesting thing is that all the women that are killed, right, it's incredible. They all sound exactly like Siobhan. There has to be a way through this. And I think the only way is education. I really do. Something has to happen in the schools to get the, the young boys and girls early, to help them to understand about healthy relationships, because what we're doing is not working. And if young men are coming out uh, and, and young women who feel that they need to be in relationships like that, there's something wrong. We're not doing our jobs we're not helping these young people to grow into healthy adults. I mean, it is so recent. We've only started the debate about uh, uh, coercive control. Yes. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and it's, it's like the, the, the latest lingo to be rolled out and discussed, but it has been going on forever. Forever, mm. forever. Um, absolutely forever. And I mean, it was going on years ago as well, like, you know, in, in the background, always in the background. But he, when Siobhan died, that terminology wasn't there when Siobhan died. And I think it would have been a huge flag for us. Yes. Had it been. Yes. You know, had had we had the insight at that stage. Um, and also ch children, teenagers, as you're saying, should be taught about co coercive control, about you know, the five main types of co coercive control. And the, the main ones basically are isolating you from your friends and your family. That's a major one. Um, controlling you. You miss the main one. Um, literally uh, watching what you do, tracking you down. Um, all of these things are huge red flags. And a lot of young girls wouldn't have a clue. Wouldn't have. They just think he's been attentive. He's been attentive. He cares about me so much. It's even hearing the two of you go back over those details. Yeah. Could a, would a, could she have? Yes. How would this have played out if differently? Mm. Yes. And potentially at the end of the day, Shawnee was Shawnee. Yeah. And if somebody had set out to, to kill her, you know, he, yes. he was intent on doing that. Um, I remember asking her to come and stay with me. Yeah. And um, I said, well, you know, because I'd gone through my own breakup years ago and it was, it was very well organised and, um, and and very decent. 
But uh, she she said, no, he's he's really good with Dan at night and he reads some stories and stuff like that. So she was always putting somebody else first. And also then when they, before this, when they were going through this, they had another house right beside where she was murdered. And she was, this is so Siobhan, like what other woman is going to say, listen, we're not getting on. This is breaking down. I live with Dan next door so that Dan can see you every day. Who else? Most people want to run a mile. Yeah. She was actually facilitating him yeah. in every way. And he didn't want that. In fact, he started, he rented the house without telling her immediately, you know. But she'd written him several letters as well. She'd written him several letters, um, yeah. Personal letters because she, she, she'd she read one out to me actually in the bedroom. Yeah. And, and then when I told the yeah. um, the police officers about the the letters and that they were in the safe, they went to the safe and they said there were no letters. And what, what were her letters? Her letters were um, lovely um, letters saying that, look, it's, it's, it's broken down. Yeah. You know, let's, I'll move in next door to the house next door. You know, we both raised Dan together. It's just not working. And um, I don't want to be in Spain. I don't want to live in Spain on my own anymore. I, I want to come home, be with my family. And um, just, let's just try and do this right. Do it, you know, really let's make it work. sensible yeah. way of working it out. Yeah. But um, no. She uh, was going to Spain for a certain number of months every year, was she? Correct. Yeah, yes. She was going from March the end of February until the end of October and basically there on her own. It's just remembering the day of the the day when we arrived there be as well just it's coming back to me when we were all in that house and that okay that awful journey over that you and I had but we nearly, when we, we got, went to the house yeah, yeah. and then mum had to call him and tell him to get back and she never told him why she just said you need to come back to the house immediately and he came into the house and the first thing he said, he went to you. Yes. And he said, oh, Bridget, I'm so sorry, especially after everything that's happened to your Michael. To, to your Michael. My, my husband drowned. And he, that's the first thing he said to me, which is completely out of context. Why would he say that? Um, it was just like, it was just... He a, was alluding to Michael, maybe perhaps having taken his own life. life. He was trying to feed that, this, um, this narrative of suicide. You know I, what I mean? Immediately. Immediately. I remember yeah, a doctor came in and, and he was palpit- he was doing this fake palpitating, Brian Kearney, and a sister was rubbing I'm his back. I'm just so grateful that the science prevailed. The science forensic, people in UCD. Yeah, the science were was amazing. Because only for the experts in UCD. They were brilliant, actually. Siobhan could not have died by suicide the way he had imagined it would play out because the flex... And we had to look at this door and this flex. We had to look at everything in the courtroom. It was all there. The door was brought in. Um, she couldn't have, because that particular flex would not have been able to hold her weight long enough for her to hang herself. And that's how they were able to, um, and they, they had to test it. They had to do it in court. They did the test in court. The, the pathologist, I recall, uh, used the words throttled. And, yes. Uh, yes. Garrison. and throttled, yeah. 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 Someone asked me what I would do if I was on my own in a room with him, like if, you know, if I was in a room, just sitting with him, like say in a prison or something, mm. I wouldn't say anything to him. There's nothing to say to someone like him. But I remember sitting beside him in courts and stuff like that, in the family courts, Disgusting. sitting there and you and you just looking at his hands. All I would look at is his hands, hands, thinking they were around Siobhan. They like were, you mean? You know, he has proven he's not rehabilitated because he has shown no remorse, remorse. or accountability for his crime. So he has 
absolutely proven that. So is, is this just a jigsaw puzzle exercise then that has to be, you know, tolerated by the parole board that they encourage, you know, these guys to go through? But that actually could prove disastrous for families. All we can do is just hope that this country and the people who make these decisions are going to take cognizance of the fact that not enough is changing at the moment for the people who are coming now, all the young boys and girls who are coming up the line, not enough is changing to help them and support them in making and having healthy, respectful relationships as they get older. They have a responsibility. The people who can make these decisions have a responsibility to start including in the education, to start including um, self-defence for girls, to, to talk about it. They need to talk about this huge, huge elephant, which is roaming. And a very big thanks to Bridget and Ashling McLaughlin for joining me today. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced and researched by myself, recorded and edited by Kean Sinnott. And don't forget, if you've been affected by anything in today's podcast, you can find a list of helplines at independent.ie forward slash helplines. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.